Romans chapter 10 this morning. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul to the saints of God that were at Rome. Their faith was known throughout the whole world. Yet he wrote this epistle to them. Romans chapter 10 and verse 15. I want the last sentence of the verse. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. I hope you see the Holy Spirit's exclamation point. This sentence begins with the word how, but it is no question. It is a declaration of God's blessing to us. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Stay with me this morning for a little while. The purpose of our assemblies is for us to encourage and provoke one another to hold fast our profession of faith. It's my job to teach you doctrine from time to time, to exhort you from time to time, to warn you and all other functions of the New Testament ministry. This morning, I want to remind you of a simple point of doctrine that we believe But I want to establish our young people in it and to remind those of you who may have let some of it slip. And that is why preach the gospel. Why do we preach the gospel? Why should the gospel be preached? Why was it ever preached? I hope that you'll pay attention this morning. Tonight, the Lord willing, we're going to go into Acts chapter 13 and we're going to begin the last 16 chapters of that book following the Apostle Paul as he goes on numerous evangelistic trips through what was then the known Roman world to preach the gospel to Gentiles. When we go into those chapters, I don't want to have to stop and spend great lengths of time explaining some of the verses to you. I want you to understand why the gospel was being preached, what its purpose was, and what the result of it was. I want our young people to know this. All of our young men in particular should pay attention. This is one of the distinguishing points of doctrine that separates us from the rest of the Baptists in this city. So pay attention. We don't care to be in the majority. The majority has never been right. We want to be in God's minority. We don't want to be in a minority just to be different. We want to be in God's minority. If he wants to make it small, we'll still praise him. If he wants to make it very small, we'll still praise him. If he wants to add to it, we'll praise him. But we're going to hold to the truth of God's word. I was at Mass at St. Mary's last night. There were 600 people in attendance. The sermon was six minutes long. The sermon was taken from a page that the priest's mother had taken from the wall of a doctor's office. We learned things like, you can't hide a piece of broccoli in a glass of milk. We learned things like, goldfish don't like jello. And we learned that that priest did not like the Beatitudes. And because he didn't like them nor understand them, but because the liturgical season dictated that he had to read and explain the Beatitudes, He simply said, we can summarize this by saying, give. So when the basket is in front of you this morning, give. My homily is ended. Brethren, God has delivered us. I am not exaggerating. I have eight witnesses that what I just told you is a correct picture of what took place at St. Mary's last night. Now, I have a whole lot more to say than that priest had to say. And last night, I would have had a whole lot more to say if I'd have been allowed just a small opportunity. When we get to Acts 13 tonight, and the Apostle Paul went in and sat down in the synagogue that was in the city city of Antioch of Pisidia, the rulers of that synagogue sent back to him a servant that said, if you've got any word of exhortation for the people, you've got an opportunity. Oh, I wish I'd have heard those words last night. I'd have been as excited as Paul was. You've heard me say before, Paul got up and asked him to lock the back doors, and he opened his brief. He didn't need a briefcase, brethren. He went to the front, and he preached the gospel to them. And it's a glorious sermon. 
We're going to look at it tonight, the Lord willing. I have things to teach you. I'm not going to tell you about the things that are hanging on the wall of a doctor's office. I don't care if goldfish like jello or not. I haven't tried broccoli in a glass of milk. And I know what the Beatitudes are teaching. And their direct lesson is not to put more in the offering plate as it's passed in front of you. Brethren, there is an error about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's widespread. That error, and remember, all of you older ones that know this, you can be reminded of this. Because until you can defend this instinctively, you haven't heard it enough yet. And we have younger members in here that I want to know how we are different from others. I want them to know our doctrine and how we set God up on high and exalt Him. And Jesus is our only Savior, and our trust is nowhere else. Amen. Our trust is not in the gospel. Our trust is in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who died for us. The common scheme that's taught today is, God wants to save everybody so bad that He sent Jesus to die for all their sins, and the Holy Spirit tries with all His might to entice, to win, to woo, to seduce men to believe on Jesus Christ. Though for the most part, the members of the Godhead are frustrated in failures in this great effort that they make for the salvation of the whole world. That's the common scheme. Now, of course, they never get up and talk about the failure of their God. But they get up and say that God loved them all equally And he loved them so much and so seriously was he intent on delivering them from hell that he sent Jesus to pay for all of the sins of all men. And the Holy Spirit tries equally to win those men to Jesus Christ that we are left with the conclusion, unless all men are in heaven, then God in that scheme is a very frustrated and a failing being. It's horrible to even consider it that way because the God I know has never failed. He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? And I could quote that verse and another 20 just like it. That's the common scheme. Gospel preaching is understood by Baptists. Let's not worry about all these baptismal regenerationists like the Catholics, the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, the Methodists, the Presbyterians. Oh, they don't want to be called baptismal regenerationists, but go read their confessions of faith carefully. And the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and others who believe that you're baptized in order to be saved, they look at baptism as a sacrament that brings the grace of God. Now, Baptists have always stood against Rome and outside the family reunion of all of her harlot daughters. And so they deny that baptism has any sacramental power in it. A sacrament is an outward sign that brings inward grace. The Catholics have seven. The Presbyterians have two. Baptists have none. But Baptists, they understand that baptism isn't a sacrament. And they understand that the Lord's Supper is not a mass. Now, I saw Jesus Christ supposedly re-sacrificed last night. But he wasn't re-sacrificed because he died once for all. And he hath forever perfected them that are sanctified. But Baptists, denying that baptism is a sacrament, and denying that the Lord's Supper is a sacrament, believe and maintain that preaching the gospel is a sacrament. That by the preaching of the gospel, the outward sign of preaching words from the printed book of God, grace is conveyed. We don't believe that. I reveal the grace of God. I explain the grace of God. I declare the grace of God. I teach you about the grace of God. But it is not conveyed to your soul by my preaching. God conveys grace to your soul by His almighty power. And by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are enabled to believe by the power of regeneration, which power was no less than it took to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. That changed your heart. And when I preach the glorious message and reveal the good news, 
from the book of God, you have a heart that can understand it and loves it and wants to believe it and wants to obey it. Right. And it's all of grace. Amen. All I do is tell you about what God did. Amen. Oh, if I had the burden. Listen, you all are a burden enough. Amen. Just think if I had to worry about you going to hell or to heaven. I worry and I pray about you enough. Just that you'd be happy married. Amen. Just that you'd train and love your children. Just that you would draw closer to Christ. Amen. I can't even imagine that false doctrine. And neither can they because none of them practice it. I've been around them all my life. None of them practice it. Bob Jones University doesn't practice it. If they, believe, if they ever believed with even a, a modicum of sincerity that souls were going to hell unless they sent the gospel, they wouldn't have so many millions wrapped up in that campus. Right. They'd be worshiping, they'd be having their classes in buildings that were not air-conditioned or heated. Because why would you waste money on an HVAC system when you could save more souls from hell? Why would you have such an art gallery that it's rated one of the best in the whole earth for religious art when you could sell that and bring so many souls to glory? They don't believe it. They do not believe it. But they teach that doctrine. I'm going to tell you why. Because Satan want, must by any effort that he can make, detract from the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they take salvation away from Jesus Christ and put it in the hands of the preacher boy class. I'm thankful that my salvation isn't resting in the preacher boy class. Those guys who, for the pride of being a Bob Jones preacher boy, enter the ministry, many of them, not all of them. I've been with those boys, and I've lived with those boys. I've seen them rush back from worship services to turn on baseball games in dorm rooms because that was far more important to them than what they just heard in chapel. I've been there. Don't tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. I've been there. I've seen them sit in chapel and have textbooks inside their Bible so that they could be studying for class instead of listening to the preaching. You say those are exceptions. Oh, no, they're not exceptions. The exceptions there are those that are truly sincere about their false doctrine. But enough about them. That isn't important. What I want to do is remind you all that we are in a minority on how we believe men are saved and the purpose of preaching the gospel. Their doctrine, the doctrine of Baptists, can be reduced to decisional regeneration. The gospel is preached, and if you will make a simple decision... It doesn't matter what you have done before, and it doesn't matter what you do after. If you will make a simple decision for Jesus, then you can be saved by the power of the gospel and go to heaven when you die. That is their doctrine. It is decisional regeneration. We have nothing to do with it. And I am so thankful that God has shown us enough truth that we can discard that whole thing as heresy. We do not believe in decisional regeneration. We don't even believe in cooperative Regeneration. Amen. That's right. Oh, I love it. Yep. It's so freeing. Amen. Freeing that we're not thankful? Oh, no. Freeing that we don't want to preach the truth? Oh, no. Freeing from the bondage of a man-made system that salvation rests in what men do. Right. And when I say salvation in that context, I mean eternal life. They have songs that they love to sing like Rescue the Perishing as if they're going to go out and save the perishing. Ever ever sang that? How many have sang Rescue the Perishing? How about Throw Out the Lifeline? Throw Out the Lifeline, a soul is sinking today. Oh, precious indeed. Yes, let's bless ourselves as the saviors of mankind. If we don't go, how will they be saved? That's how they all believe. You say, you are so confident, almost arrogant, and you're in a position that is of such a small minority. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. I'm glad you've recognized that fact, Amen. that the truth is in a very small minority. Right. It always has been. Do you know what all the Canaanites must have thought about the Israelites? The Bible says that they were the smallest of all people. That's right. And yet, guess which nation God loved? Amen. And guess which nations God hated. He loved the smallest and hated the rest of them. Guess what all the neighbors of Noah thought? That's right. 
he was in a very small minority. And God drowned the rest of them. I don't care when you look in history, it was a small minority. I'm not ashamed one bit. I'll make fun of songs like that because they're so anti-scriptural. There's a new name written down in glory. Anybody ever sing that one? 250 in inspiring hymnals. There's a new name written down in glory. No, there isn't a new name written down in glory. They were all written there before the foundation of the world by a loving God who set his affection on us and who is going to save us from beginning to end by his own power. Amen. And he sent the gospel to tell us about it so that we could rejoice and be exceeding glad. Amen. Not to be regenerated or have anything added to our salvation. Our justification is as sure as if, if we never heard it. In God's sight, which is the bar of justice where it all counts, right. we are thankful for the gospel and we're thankful for faith because by faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us, we're justified in our own consciences and minds. Thank you, Lord, for telling us about it. Thank you for sending some beautiful feet to preach the gospel to us. Those that are called Arminians, and don't worry about these technical terms, there's hardly a man left in the earth that can even figure them out. Arminians propose that lost men are ignorant and only need to believe the gospel to be saved. Those are Arminian Baptists, the majority. Man is simply ignorant, and if he's just given a little bit of help and a little bit of instruction, he can make enough decisions by his own free will to be saved and never be lost, no matter how he lives. Calvinists propose that lost men are dead, but they will by necessity believe the gospel in order to be saved. And that there is no justification outside the faith of the elect. We deny both of those. We hold to the scriptures. Those Calvinists also, most, most Calvinists also believe in baptismal regeneration, but they hate the word because most Calvinists, we've got to admit it, brethren. We've got to admit it. They've been Anglicans, Presbyterians, Lutherans, and others that have held to the five points of Calvin. We don't hold the five points of anyone. We hold to all the points of Scripture. And I don't ridicule some of those points because some of them are stated well and believed well and taught well, but not all. We hold that eternal life is an unconditional gift by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. With all the operations of that grace performed by divine power, without a single loss of any that were intended to be saved. Because we hold that, that eternal life is a gift by the grace of God through Jesus Christ without the loss of a single one, no disappointment in the Godhead whatsoever, but complete and total success and glory in that great day of judgment, because we hold that glorious doctrine, we're accused of having no place for the gospel. Because some holding our doctrine have been fatalists and never did anything. Because some holding our doctrine became antinomians, which means they had no place for good works. But I will tell you that many of those that were called fatalists and antinomians were simply called that by those who were jealous and envious of the gospel that those men taught. And they were envious of the liberty of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they had to accuse Some holding our doctrine became preachers of a false hope for almost all men. I don't hold out any false hope for most men. Neither Neither do you. Some holding our doctrine became opposed to evangelism or ever preaching to others. And that's not the case here. We'll preach the gospel anywhere, at any time, to anyone that shows that they fear God and want to hear the truth. Amen. Because we hold that eternal life is unconditional, some say we have no place for the gospel. We have a place for the gospel. That's what I want to show you this morning. Many say that they see the sovereignty of God, but they also see man's free will in the Bible. And therefore, because they don't want any to go to hell, because they weren't energetic enough, they'll put God's sovereignty and God's glory and Christ's work to the side And they will labor to make sure that they've told everyone that they can, that they ought to believe in order to be born again, to obtain eternal life and an eternal inheritance. Do you understand that? Because they see both taught in the Bible, they say, we're going to go ahead and emphasize the responsibility of man just in case 
And so that no one would end up in hell because we weren't energetic enough toward that end. We believe that the sovereignty of God is taught in Scripture and the responsibility of man is taught in Scripture. We exalt the sovereignty of God and the complete lordship and saviorship of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and we reconcile every other passage about man's responsibility to be passages describing the evidence of eternal life and those things that the regenerated elect are supposed to be doing to please God and have a successful life while they're left here till Jesus comes. We want to err, if there's any error, and there is none. But for those listening to tapes that think you're taking a risk there, we'll take our risk most cheerfully because we will err on the side of the glory of God. You can err on the side of the glory of man. Our trust is in the free grace of the living God and the testimony of Scripture that He is indeed most gracious and the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. We're happy to cast all of our hope at His feet and we will trust that hope in life and in death. And we will look at every act of believing on our part to be nothing but the evidence and the result of His grace and every good work as nothing but to establish for our own heart's sake the assurance that we are His elect. We believe in no conditions. We believe in unconditional salvation by grace. Thank you, Lord, for showing us that. I don't want to preach long on this subject, and I'm in deep trouble, because there's so much I want to say to you. Ephesians chapter 1, brethren. Ephesians chapter 1. Don't let me hear any souls say, and don't let the angels or God himself hear your souls say, I already know this passage. If you know it, then quote it to me right now. Verses 3 through 14. I'll be happy to listen to them, and I'll say amen when you're done. Thank you. I guess we can read it one more time. Amen. We don't read it that often. But when we read it, we want to love it. Right. Now listen to this, all you men saviors. This is what God has to say. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does Paul want to bless him? He's going to tell you why he wants to bless him right here. Who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Not on earth in heavenly places, in Christ, all spiritual blessings have been already given to you by the blessing of God the Father. Amen. We could quit right there. Amen. Obviously, that verse is so plain that by itself it is sufficient to lay the foundation for salvation. Amen. And all other verses must be reconciled to Ephesians 1, 3. But let's go to verse 4. According, here's how we get all those spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. What can we say to the word of God except, thank you, Lord. We praise you. We bless you for having given us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ by a sovereign, divine choice of us before the world began. Not a sovereign, divine choice of us when we were fulfilling any conditions or cooperating with grace in any way, shape, or form, but before the world began. And what was the intent of that choice? That we should be holy and without blame. Who can make himself holy and without blame? Not one. But God can make all of his elect holy and without blame by placing them in Christ where all their sins have been washed away by his substitutionary death on the cross. And yes, we are the only ones that believe in a substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ that Jesus died for sinners. And if he died for them, then there is no possible way that they could die for their sins themselves. So what will you do with that? All those of you 
who think that Jesus died for all the sins of all men, and he died a substitutionary death, you love to take our words, but you do not believe that, because how will any of them ever go to hell if Jesus Christ died a substitutionary death for them? We believe he died a substitutionary death for us. He died for us. We can't die unless you want to destroy the justice and integrity of the holy God who would make a double claim in his justice against the sins of men. And that you would relegate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to a partial forgiveness. What happened on the cross of Calvary but God poured out his wrath and judgment and justice on the Lord Jesus Christ for all the sins of some men. And those some men are these chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Blessed be God. Amen. Amen. Verse 5. All those of you that are following me that might hear this by tape. And we love you if you love the Lord Jesus Christ and fear his name and tremble before his word. Verse 4 does not end with a period, but it continues by saying, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. Listen, I have to stop here again. I didn't mean to stop at all. I just wanted to read these words to you. The way you become a child of God is by adoption. And the only ones that are adopted are those that were predestinated to adoption. Now we've had God's choice in verse 4, and now we have his predestination in verse 5. Why aren't these things taught? Because Satan has sent another gospel with another Jesus and another spirit to detract from the glory of God and the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you love him this morning? I want him to be blessed by every word that I say. I have begged him for this hour. According to the good pleasure of His will. Brethren, you want to talk about free will? I believe in a free will. I believe in the free will of God who had no compunction, compassion, or reason to choose me. But He chose me. And yes, I said it correctly when I said no compassion. Because before I was in Christ Jesus by sovereign will, there was no compassion for me as a lost sinner. It was because He chose me in Jesus Christ. That's what verse 4 already said, that I would be in him holy and without blame before him in love. Because until I was holy, he couldn't have compassion on me. I'll tell you about free will. I believe in salvation by free will. Eternal life is a gift by free will. It's the free will of God that was not bound to give to any. That he would give to some is incredible. The angels that fell, he gave to none. But he gave to some men the gift of eternal life. According to the good pleasure of his will. It wasn't the good pleasure of you. It was the good pleasure of his will. His will made a free choice that it would be to his pleasure to save some of Adam's fallen race to magnify his incredible grace and glory someday at the great sentencing that's going to take place at the final judgment. Brethren, I know I say it. I want you to think about the final judgment. And I don't always preach it as a horrible thing, brethren. I think it's the most fantastic day in the entire history of the universe before and after. Right. Because God is going to reveal the good pleasure of his will. Right. And the good pleasure of his will is to save some. And you know what? You're going to be highly motivated to sing in that day. Amen. I won't need to encourage you. No one will need to encourage you. The fires and, he- and the fires and smoke of hell will be on your backside and grace and glory before you and a Lord Jesus Christ showing you love that you have never imagined. Right. Willing to defend himself by coming forward invoking his name over your name that you are his and that you belong in heaven Amen. with him before the entire universe of men and angels and four beasts that are going to be nodding and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and saying Amen after each one of your names. Right. You say, I'm melodramatic. 
read the book of Revelation, then the book of Romans, then the book of Hebrews, then the book of Galatians, then the book of Ephesians. See, they only put it fifth. And see if you don't see all of that there. By the grace of God, I read in these three verses that we've been chosen and all spiritual blessings are in heavenly places in Christ according to God's choice, according to his predestination, which was by the good pleasure of his will. Verse 6, and here's the reason why. Because he felt sorry for little sinners. I'm glad that I don't worship a God that feels sorry. I'm glad I worship a God that loves to magnify how great he is. Because it says here in this sixth verse that God saves men and chose them in Christ before the world began. And why am I preaching a message that no one has hardly heard in this earth? And why are you hearing it? I'll tell you why. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of the preachers. And I'll also tell you how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. No one wants to preach this. To the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why he saved. Wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. They want to talk about accepting Jesus. Did you know there's not a verse in the Bible about accepting Jesus as your personal Savior? Not one verse. But if you went to the average church, you'd hear it so many times, you'd think that it must be on every page. There isn't one verse! I want to tell you what's going to get you into heaven. It's God accepting you because of what Jesus Christ did for you. And we're told that in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. All of that is by his choice and his predestination, brethren. Eternal life is not merely a possibility for any or all. Eternal life is not a possibility. Eternal life is a guaranteed certain thing for the elect that God chose in Christ before the world began. Now that was a period at verse 6, but let's keep reading anyway. Verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to our fervent confession and acceptance. I do this not to ridicule the word of God, but to ridicule heresy and to make you think about what is actually said. Verse 7 says, in whom we have redemption. That whom is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Amen. Wherein his grace he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, his will, not yours, according to the good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. He didn't purpose it with you, and you didn't purpose it with him. He purposed it in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things that are in Christ. Not one will be lost. All will be gathered together, certainly. Both which are in heaven, some are already there, and which are on earth, even in him. In whom, that is in Jesus Christ also, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. Amen. Who first trusted in Christ, Paul and the apostles. Because then he goes on the next verse to say, In whom ye also trusted. After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And brethren, what does the word gospel mean? It means good news. It's such a simple word, but we don't use it anymore. It's a word from Old English, and it means good news. And you must always read it as good news. Because all the work of salvation has just been wrapped up when we got to the period of verse 12. It's all of God and according to the good pleasure of His will, who worketh all things according to the purpose of His own will. Amen. It's all of God. And so then we read in verse 13, In whom ye also trusted. Now why did they trust? What was the basis for their trusting? Because of all that God did in verses 3 through 12. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth. The good news of your salvation. A Baptist sacramentalist 
reads that verse and thinks that in verse 13 you get all the goodies of verses 3 through 12 by, fil- fo- by fulfilling a condition and taking from the gospel pinata. They're sacramentalists. They cannot read the word of God without squeezing in their sacramental religion that you must perform a condition in order to obtain the benefits of verses 3 through 12. But all it says is that you trusted. After that, you heard the word of truth. I'm preaching you truth right now. The good news of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance. It's not our inheritance. It's not our salvation. It's the earnest of it. Do you know? all know what an earnest is? An earnest payment. It's a down payment. It's a surety bond. It's a promise of performance. We have the Holy Spirit within us that says, God is my Father, and I've been saved, and I love Jesus Christ, and He's paid for my sins. You have that by grace, and you have that upon believing. You have the earnest, but the inheritance is already established in a certain thing because you've been predestinated to that inheritance. Your destiny was determined beforehand. You cannot lose it. He'll gather together all in Christ. He will not lose one. But not until you hear the word of truth, the good news of your salvation, and you believe it, are you given that comforting, blessing, encouraging, assuring ministry of the Holy Spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. I want to tell you that the mighty power of the Holy Spirit in regenerating your heart comes long before you believe, and we couldn't even get out of chapter 1 of Ephesians without learning that. So let's keep on reading. Which Verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. What, does, what do those words mean? Do you all understand those words? Amen. The redemption, to buy back. The redemption is to buy back. The purchased possession. What is the purchased possession? You, and in particular, your body, which is the last stage of your glorification when your body will be resurrected, glorified, made incorruptible and immortal, and received into heaven. Until that day, for us to know that it's going to happen, and for us to live by hope, we're given an earnest, which is the earnest of our inheritance, because we don't have it yet. The day we have our inheritance is when we are walking in heaven. When we are walking in heaven, we will have received our final realization of the complete inheritance, which we were predestinated to before the world began, and we were given an earnest of it when we believed the good news about our salvation. Do you all understand the simplicity of these words? The redemption of the purchased possession is the deliverance of our bodies from the grave so that we're in heaven, body, soul, and spirit, realizing the full inheritance that we were promised and predestinated to before the world began. Amen. It's all of God. Amen. All you do when you hear the good news is you believe it, and the Lord rewards your belief and comforts you in your belief to build up your faith so that your heart is assured before Him that you are indeed one of His, and you get excited about praising God for His glorious grace. That's why Psalm 68 and verse 3 said, Let the righteous be glad. Yea, let them rejoice exceedingly. Because it wasn't their righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. It's all of Him. It's all of Him, brethren. Now, we do have the belief mentioned here. Don't you want to believe this great message? Don't you want to believe this good news? You don't believe it in order to get any of those Blessings of verses 3 through 12. You believe it to comfort your heart. But I want to show you that the the operations of God were already in effect before you ever believed, or you never would have, right right. from this very passage. Verse 15, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory 
of His inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe? According to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. God quickened two dead beings. Jesus Christ and you. And what kind of power did it take in both cases? Did it just take a little therapy because you were just sick in a hospital bed? Did it just take a little therapy? Or did it take a resurrection? Because I read in verse 19 that the Apostle Paul wanted these saints to understand the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. He wanted them to understand and to know the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe according to the working of His mighty power which He wrought in Christ. That power of God that reached down to that hillside where the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth was laid in that tomb and wrapped in those linen clothes, that power that came down there and shook the earth and caused those keepers to be so frightened and rolled away that stone and Jesus Christ was delivered from that grave by the mighty power of God that resurrected the dead body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. That exceeding great power was necessary, necessarily used in each of us in order to believe the gospel. Right. And that is what we are told right there in chapter 1. And you, what is the word and therefore? And you hath he quickened. And you hath he raised up to sit together in heavenly places. Because it's the same operation that he performed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Resurrection from the dead. If it wasn't for that resurrection, we would never believe. That is why the great difference in mankind. Very few care at all about the things of God in any sincere way. We're going to see the Apostle Paul as we study Acts chapter 13 through 28. Coming into cities... Some would believe and hold with Him and give up their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And others would blaspheme and contradict everything He said and do all in their might to kill Him for simply being a preacher. What makes that great difference? The grace of God. Praise His holy name. Why preach the gospel? Let me tell you, we preach the gospel so that God's elect can hear the good news of their salvation, and they can turn back and praise and bless His holy name and do those things in this life that are pleasing to Him and to the profit and comfort of their souls. I hope that Ephesians chapter 1 is plain enough without further elaboration on it. It's all of God. God's choice. Every spiritual blessing is in Christ by His choice. It's put there. We're put there. We're chosen in Him. We're made holy and without blame by this choice. We're predestinated to an eternal inheritance, the forgiveness of sins, and every spiritual blessing that you can imagine and those that you can't because you don't even know them yet. But all the blessings that are in Christ, the exceeding greatness of His riches, of His glory, all of it by the choice of a loving God and a merciful God who chose us in Christ Jesus. We hear the good news of that message, and we rejoice. The only reason you rejoice is because you are one of God's elect, and and the, the exceeding great power that raised Jesus from the dead has already been acted, has already been exerted on your soul so that your soul is turned from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of light, Given you a new heart, a fleshy heart that can hear and receive spiritual things, discern and understand them, and rejoice at them, all by the power of God. Right. If that power was not acted, if that power was not exerted upon you, you would not believe. You would hate the gospel of Jesus Christ. You would hate Jesus Christ and any man proclaiming His name, right. because you 
would be acting, living, speaking, and thinking according to the prince of the power of the air who hates the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan himself. What a glorious doctrine. Amen. Amen. What am I? I am nothing. I am Balaam's ass with the glorious privilege of telling you the great news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Amen. The point I'm wanting to establish right here, and we're making very slow progress, the point I want to establish is eternal life is not merely a possibility. As so many teach, it's rather a certainty for the elect. Eternal life is not an option. It's not a possibility. It's not something you can choose if you really want it, and that anyone can have it. It is a guaranteed certainty for all of the elect. That is the difference. Our doctrine is so different from the rest of this city and most Baptists. Those Baptists are sacramentalists. They are carrying around a gospel that they believe that you can dip into and obtain all the blessings of God by fulfilling some condition. It's decisional regeneration. We deny it all. It's all of God. And the fact that we believe does not add to that eternal life. It adds to our comfort in knowing about that eternal life. We want to hear more about the gospel because it tells us all about what God has done for us. Do you know who Paul liked to preach to the most? The Ephesians. You know, no one understands the Bible much because they've got their soul-winning machinery in place. And they haven't, they've, they've forgotten to read the Bible because they're so busy out saving souls by themselves. Mm-hmm. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. There's a verse that's quoted oftentimes from this chapter. It's the 16th verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. It would be my dream that I said it clearly enough from Ephesians chapter 1 that you can hear the reading of Romans 1.16 and look at it and understand it without explanation. But let me help you a little bit. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. There's no power there for an unbeliever. First of all, there's no power in the gospel. The gospel is good news. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I am not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ. For it, that's a pronoun referring to a noun. What is the antecedent of that pronoun, it? Is it the gospel? So we substitute the definition for the word gospel to help us understand this verse. For the good news is the power of God unto salvation. Now, does it make sense to you? To everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is no power in the gospel in itself. Me preaching these words conveys no power. We do not believe in an outward sign with inward grace. We are not sacramentalists. We understand this verse. So so I'm going to tell you more about this verse. Just hold on. I just want you to see it. The gospel is the good news of the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Those are the only ones Paul wanted to preach it to. Let me show you that. Look at verse 15. So, as much as in me is, he didn't say, I will take a little detour from my main objective of winning the lost at any cost to come and preach to you in Rome. He said, so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Now, you at Rome, does he mean he's waiting for the Romans to take him to the brothels and to the jails so that he can waste the gospel in those two places? No. No. He wants to preach the gospel to the saints that are at Rome. Romans chapter 1. Verse 7, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. There is God's choice of them to be the saints of himself. 
grace to you. He says in verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. I am praying that God, if he might, by his mercy, by, by his will, allow me to come to you that I might impart a spiritual gift, verse 11. That I might be comforted together with you, verse 12, by the mutual faith, both of you and me. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. To whom did Paul want to preach? Believers. Amen. When he preached to believers, he what did he preach? It was something he wasn't ashamed of. That's right. What wasn't he ashamed of? The good news of what Jesus Christ had done by the power of God in saving them. Right. Amazing text. Do you know what they use that verse for? They pull Romans 1.16 out, run it down to Kinko's, and make great big posters 20 feet long and 4 feet high, and stick it up and say that this verse tells us to go out and preach the gospel in brothels and jails. Because, it's, because it says it is the power of God. They love the sound of words, and they've never stopped to think about the sense of those words. The sense of those words are the good news. The information I'm giving you, what I'm declaring to you, is the power of God that's in Jesus Christ. That's right. Notice, if there's power in it, why would Paul waste his time wanting to preach it to believers? Because they're the only ones that would ever appreciate it. Why would you want to preach it to an unbeliever? You say, well, doesn't an unbeliever have to change to being a believer? Yeah, but it doesn't take long when God's been operating on the unbeliever. We don't read about long, drawn-out conversion processes in the New Testament. We believe they heard the truth and they humbled themselves, repented and said, what must I do? Or or, uh, what what doth hinder me from being baptized? And men and brethren, what shall we do? And they were baptized. I want you to come over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 so that we can shed shed a little further light on Romans chapter 1. But I want you to notice and never forget that Paul wanted to preach the gospel of Romans 1.16 to those saints who had such great faith that it was already spoken of throughout the whole world. He wanted to get together with them and comfort them by him preaching a fuller explanation and seeing their joy at hearing a fuller explanation. All of them together would be comforted by the mutual faith of the Romans and of Paul. That's why he wanted to preach the gospel. And that verse is stolen and abused and taken out of its context and misused. That is our verse. That's why I'm preaching to you this morning. And I can tell by your responses and your faces and your eyes, and knowing you, brethren, that love the Lord, you love to hear it. And we're being comforted together by the mutual faith, both of you and me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Let's get verse 17. It's too good. It's too good. Can you imagine being a child and going in a toy store? And being given an unlimited check, anything you want. Sure. How about an adult? Go into any subdivision in Greenville, any house you want. I don't know how to excri- I don't know how to tell you about the riches of His glory, Amen. and the glory of knowing the truth. Listen to these words in light of what is taught elsewhere. First Corinthians one seventeen, for Christ sent me not to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words. I must comment on a few of these phrases, not with wisdom of words. That means that education is negative when it comes to the gospel. Right. Not with wisdom of words. Eloquence defeats the purpose of the gospel. Right. Give me an illiterate man who's been taught by Jesus of Nazareth about the grace of God and salvation and let him stumble through some sentences and paragraphs as he explains that salvation is all of God and he is an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and I'll show you men converted whose faith stands in the power of God not in the wisdom of men. 
give me these great big Baptist churches with their charismatic Ph.D., Th.D. speech doctorates in the pulpit, and I'll show you people whose faith stands in the wisdom of men. Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. And there's a reason for this. How do we find the elect? Preach the bare bones gospel of Jesus Christ in simplicity without the wisdom of men and see who responds. Those that respond are the elect of God because in their hearts is faith already placed that loves to hear the simple, unadulterated, Christ-only plan of salvation. And they're constantly frustrated, disappointed, and carnal when they sit under a horrifying ministry that salvation is dependent upon men. Or it's presented, whenever, whenever it is presented with some form of truth, it's presented with the wisdom of man's learning. Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Amen. Wait a minute. Shouldn't the preaching of the cross be to them that perish the potential power of God? No, it's foolishness. Because a man that's perishing, that God has bypassed, that God is allowing to go on justly in his sins, will think that it's foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Are saved, perfect tense, passive voice, is the power of God. A person that has already been acted upon by the Lord Jesus Christ and regenerated when he hears the simplistic preaching of the cross of Calvary, he responds and knows that is the power of God in that message. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. There is no benefit in understanding or knowledge, education or any mental attainments to acquiring salvation. Right. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. God, in his wise review of the whole earth, all six billion of us that are alive at the present time, and all that have gone before us, in the wisdom of God, as he looked and analyzed the state of mankind, he realized that by wisdom, no one knew him. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. To save them to what, brethren, that it's right here in this context? The knowledge of God. The knowledge of God. He said he looked and he saw that in his wisdom, there was no man that knew him. So, he sent the foolishness of preaching. Simple men preaching a simple message, believed by simple people, so that men might know him. Remember, eternal life is that they might know me. The true God and his son, Jesus Christ. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. That save there is not eternal life. That save there is to save them from ignorance of God, to knowledge of him, and the power of God in their salvation. All you have to do is keep reading these verses and giving them the sense that uh, that is obvious in the context and remembering Ephesians chapter 1 as your foundation. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Jews want to see a sign. Greeks want to hear an eloquent discourse. And so God, because he wanted to save them all, sent PhDs to the Greeks, and he sent charismatics to the Jews. God forbid. Let's read the text. God looked in his wisdom and saw Jews want a sign, Greeks want wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. 
God took a market survey, and I've said this before, God took a market survey of what the world wanted to hear. What the Jews wanted were signs. What the Greeks wanted were wisdom. And so because he didn't want to save them all, he preached Christ crucified. And the only ones that would ever receive that message are his elect that have been born again by the power of God. Because to a Jew it's foolish. To a Greek it's foolishness. And to the Jews it's a stumbling block. Verse 24, But unto them which are called perfect tense, passive voice, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What's the gospel to a man who's already been called perfect tense, passive voice? It's the power and wisdom of God. He hears the message of Jesus of Nazareth dying on the cross of Calvary, a substitutionary death for God's elect that he chose in him before the foundation of the world. And all he can see is incredible, infinite, divine wisdom and incredible, infinite, divine power. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. That's why we preach the gospel. Right. We'll have more to say on this. In the future. May the Lord bless you to understand, to believe, to rejoice, and to be exceeding glad for all that God has done for us. We are different, brethren, and I do not want the young men in this assembly to miss these sermons. I don't care if you have to get tapes and wear them out. I'll replace them at my cost. I want you established in this doctrine so that you are not led astray into thinking that you have any part in your eternal salvation. It's all of God, and may he get all the honor and the glory from this effort. Amen.